0: primped hair, don't care. Allie is uh, looking a little different today. Um, <laughs> to <laughs> so say the least. I we're planning my bachelorette party for this weekend. We're planning hair, nails, and everything for the wedding and then Allie just goes, well, I hope I can like make sure they know when they do my pedicure to avoid my big toe. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, I broke my toe this week. Yeah, dropped a shelf
1: on it. I oh. just... <laughs>
0: I don't know how things like that happen. And again, dropped a shelf, broke her toe right before we are about to go walking all around downtown Baltimore on Saturday Which is for like my bachelorette party. Cobblestone Central. It's literally all we have is cobblestone. It's, I'm going to die. It'll be good. I'll be good dead. I. Uh- <laughs> I didn't want you at the wedding anyways um, <laughs> excellent but yeah it's going to be fun we'll let you know how it went because when you hear this we'll already be past it so <laughs> maybe you'll have seen photos from the bachelorette party we'll see you probably
1: <laughs> will but we're not here yeah. to talk about my big toe no or your crimped hair <laughs> <laughs> which,
0: <laughs> which we just, didn't even we're, we're not going to ignore reference you know secret, what secret crimped. ignore it uh, we're here to talk about history on the rocks with Katie and Allie this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional
1: women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we
0: are drinking the entire time.
1: And we are not historians.
0: (laughs) Um... We're Googlers. We're Googlers. <laughs> we're wikipedia
1: uh, But we don't know all the stuff that you think we know.
0: No, we don't. And we're going to get into like some poetry stuff tonight. And just, again, we're not poets either. So you know, if you hear us make a mistake or if you're like, wow, you interpreted that poem way off, uh, just let us know. We'd love to hear back from you. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you can always follow us on any of
1: our socials to let us know. Yes. You can join us on Patreon to let us know. That's where yeah. our favorite people are. They get bonus episodes and yes. we send them things in the mail every now and again um
0: and we would love it if you talked to us rather than writing us a scathing review um and not mentioning it to us at all <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh okay great so you're busy you're so busy you're actually <laughs> outside building a birdhouse yes you are it's about to be, well i don't know are the birds going south right now yeah they're
1: getting out but you want it so ready you're for florida
0: well, if you're in Florida, they're coming, they're coming to you. Coming to you. You're, so, you're building the geese house. <laughs> so if you're building your big, giant Florida birdhouses, uh, you're busy, you're nailing, you're painting, you're sanding. Not necessarily in that order. Um, so you don't have time to look up what these women look like. So we're going to describe them for you in a little segment we like to, to call, call getting <laughs> Good job physical, physical. physical. I'm very off tonight. Oh, Allie, okay. who are you covering and what does she look like? I
1: am doing the wonderfully hilarious Carol Burnett. <sighs> yes. And Carol has had multiple hairstyles over the years, but almost always it's been very short, sometimes mm-hmm. like Pixie, sometimes a really short Bob. It's almost always a strawberry or light auburn yeah. color. She has really big features, yes, just does. in general big eyes, big mouth, big smile. And she says that she never believed that she was pretty. So that's interesting to me. Um, because she's definitely, I think, very
0: beautiful. Oh, I think Um, so too. Not
1: like classically Hollywood beautiful though, I guess, of that time period. So I think that's what she's talking about. Yeah. Um, and she's never in the same outfit twice, but it's not because she's a fastinista. It's because she is a full chest of clothing for her multiple (laughs) variety shows. (laughs) And that's what Carol Burnett looks like.
0: Who are you doing
1: and what does she look like?
0: So I am doing Sylvia Plath. Uh, She was a tall, thin woman who could absolutely light up a room with her huge smile and platinum blonde hair. Now, she was born with brown hair, uh, but she dyed it platinum to stand out like Marilyn Monroe. It would go back and forth between blonde and brunette over the years, and it would change lengths um, from like a kind of a short, curled bob to a long braid over her shoulders. Sometimes she had bangs, sometimes she didn't. And that sounds very Elsa, very, yes. And in some photos, uh, she appears more solemn, but in most she is bursting with life she's playing on the beach there's this amazing set of photos of her where she's like has her platinum blonde hair hair, this bright red lipstick and she's in a white bikini on the beach just like doing this really fun photo shoot and uh, a lot of times too she is just laughing with her head thrown back and just a slight crinkle in her nose and uh, that is what Sylvia Plath looked like
1: I love that so do you want to know what you're about to drink I do it looks so cute and
0: fresh and lovely.
1: So uh, this is called All the World's a Laugh. And it is five ounces of cranberry juice and one and a half ounces of rum. And I put basil in it And then mixed it in. So I didn't put the basil in the shaker. But also, if you're a sober Sally, then I would say take out the rum and add um, flavored LaCroix instead. Ooh, I
0: love that. Okay, perfect. Cheers. Cheers.
1: Hmm.
0: I love any cranberry-based cocktail. I do, too, and I I don't know that I've had a rum one Mm -mm. recently. It's been a while, Mm -hmm. if we've
1: done it before.
0: No, definitely.
1: And the basil's just nice on, like, your nostrils as you're drinking the
0: drink. Absolutely. Yeah, it's more of, like, a a tone setter. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't necessarily taste the basil, but, like, it's just kind of there. Like, you get its essence, which is really nice. (laughs) I like it. All right. (laughs) So tell me what you know about Carol Burnett. Okay, I know she is, like, the original female comedian. Um, She had this, like, variety show that was so famous. She's a fantastic improviser. Um, She is just this very, like, tall, commanding woman, I feel like. And I just know she's, like, a comedy legend. And apparently she would, like, tug her ear to say hi to her mom at the end of every show. And she had a very big Tarzan. Yeah, Laugh or something. Yeah, (laughs) Yell.
1: Yeah, those things are so on point. Carol Burnett is such an interesting person. I watched a CBS documentary that's about an hour and a half long about her that you can find for free on YouTube. And then I listened to a lot of interviews with Carol Burnett because she is just so Mm well-spoken and she's still alive. So it's like a real... She's a really nice person to listen to talk about her life. She's also written a a couple memoirs. Mm -hmm. So... To me, that's something that's really cool because then it's like, you know, she's good at talking about her life and she knows what stories
0: she wants to tell. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like she also like probably knows how to like bring a little bit of levity and joy into like telling her own story, which I can really appreciate. (laughs) Uh, Someone told me recently, I was talking about my bout with kidney stones years ago when I was in high school and they're like, Wow, you're, like, really laughing a lot about this. I was like, yeah, I mean, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I obviously survived. I'm okay. But, like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, your kidney stones weren't fun. I didn't envy you. We were at the beach. (laughs) It was torturous. Um, Uh, So let me tell you. Yes, I'd love to know. Okay, so Carol was born on April 26, 1933, in Texas, which I didn't Hmm. expect. Uh, Not at and all. no, she was a baby of the depression. So if you're born in 1933. Like people have been living in shit for a couple of years, especially like middle class families that have suddenly become lower class. Mm-hmm. Her mom was Ina Louise, a publicity writer for movie studios, and her dad was Joseph Thomas, a movie theater manager. And kind of keep in mind that they always wanted to be more, and just like didn't make it. Okay. there's a reason they didn't make it. And it's also the reason I have a sober Sally drink tonight. Both of her parents were heavy alcoholics. Oh, no. Yeah, she grappled and struggl- struggled with this her entire life. Wait, Carol did or her mom? Not as an alcoholic. Okay. As, like, dealing with the fact that her <gasps> dealing parents with her. Okay. were both alcoholics. Because as a kid, she felt like it was her fault oh. that she drove them to this, that her parents were dealing with alcoholism And she now, and throughout her life on many occasions, has talked at events about alcoholism and addresses that it is not anyone's fault and that the people who are dealing with it are sick and they need help. But unfortunately, that's not the way that alcohol and drug addiction was treated when Carol was a kid. Yeah. So at a young age, because of that, she was left with her grandmother on a regular basis. Her parents divorced when she was really, really young, and her mom moved to Hollywood because she wanted to take her writing career farther. Her grandmother was then like, okay, like, yeah, you can go to Hollywood, but I'm your mom, and I'm watching your kids, so we're going, too. So she picks up from Texas, and they move into the same boarding house where her mom is. Okay. So her mom's living in a boarding house. And Carol's living in a boarding house, but with her grandmother. Okay. And her other, like, stepsister or half-sister. So Carol is in a studio apartment with two other women in a boarding house her, like, entire childhood. That's insane. It is. And growing up in the Depression in Hollywood, she says that there were two types of people— There were poor people with alcoholic families like Uh she had, or there were movie stars and there was no No one one, in
0: between. No middle class at this point. It's just gone. And I'm sorry, what, what year was she born again? 1933. 1933. Okay.
1: Yeah. So like right at the like beginning portion of the great depression. Uh, Carol's first experience though, with singing came from her grandmother. Her grandmother was a trained musician who played the piano and they would sometimes sing around the dinner table. So even though they didn't have much and it was a studio apartment, they would like have joyous times together. Her grandmother also would take them to movies on a regular basis. This is like from you know how Death of a Salesman. He would like use
0: movies as an escape. I've never seen it. Okay, don't know anything about so it. So it's <laughs> like
1: a kind of depression based where it's like I'm gonna go to the movies because I need to escape from the life that I'm oh. living. And they went to sometimes as many as eight movies a week. Oh my god! It's all they spent money on. So Carol's life is surrounding watching movies. Oh my gosh. And I mean, if you can imagine, like as a child, if you're, she's pretty much learning from the way these people move and act and interact with each other on screen. Um, but she also lost, learned another really important lesson when they would leave the movie theater, they would go in the bathroom and they would steal all the toilet paper to bring oh. home with
0: them. <gasps> oh my gosh, <laughs> Carol, <laughs> Jesus, wow. Um, wonder if she still does it i hope <laughs> yes or just like sign the toilet paper
1: so somebody else can
0: steal yeah, it. yeah that'd be perfect yeah <laughs>
1: when carol was in elementary school she did briefly invent a twin imaginary sister named karen uh who had dimples like shirley temple she wanted a very cute a very cute twin sister while doing this, she would further the pretense at the boarding house by running upstairs and changing clothes and coming back and talking to the same person. Oh, my
0: gosh. So she's already doing, like, character she's, work.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: as, like, a
1: child. But she said that after a while, it got exhausting and Karen disappeared. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: She had to kill off the character. It
1: just wasn't working. Yeah. It's like whenever you watch those shows where somebody's going back and forth between two weddings, it's like doing that, uh, but every day. <laughs> oh my gosh. If you could imagine. That
0: was so stressful in the movie. Um, Oh my gosh. What was it called? It's like 27. One yes. <laughs> it's one of my favorite rom-coms. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: She also, at this point, just loved being loud and would always work in the boarding house on her Tarzan yell, which later turned into a signature for her. And she says to this day was a great vocal training exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Carol also worked as an usher at Warner Brothers Theater because in Hollywood, where are you going to get a job as a kid? And as a teen, she was trying to do a really good job at work. So she saw this couple, and they're going into the screening of Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. But she's like, there's five minutes left. Just wait. Cause it's going to spoil the ending and then go in and sit down in five minutes. And they're like, no, we want to sit down now. And she's like, it's going to destroy the movie. If you go in now. And she's like fighting with this couple and it's like refusing to let them go see the end of the movie first. Well, yeah, that
0: makes total fucking sense. And she's
1: like a movie lover. She has passion for
0: this field. Yeah. So it's like, no, I'm sure it's frustrating when it's like something you love and you're like, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) So she gets fired for that.
1: Her manager sees her and is like, you can't do that. But
0: But she was right.
1: (laughs) She was right. And later, when she gets offered a a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, they ask her where she wants it, and she gets it right in front of that theater. (laughs) (laughs) Joke's on
0: you. (laughs) I love that.
1: (laughs) After graduating from Hollywood High School in 1951, she got accepted to UCLA and was so excited but was heartbroken when she realized she couldn't afford the year's tuition. Oh my gosh. Of guess how much it was to go to UCLA for a 1 year back then? Like what, $500? $50? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god. Somebody
1: look up the tuition and message me on Instagram. I want to know what even it is now. That. <laughs> $50, but she came home after finding out about this and obviously you know it probably been a couple of days she probably told some people and there's an envelope in the mail with her name on it and she opens it and it has all the money for her year tuition completely anonymous she oh, still still doesn't, doesn't know, know? still doesn't know what? who gave her that money that's insane
0: it is insane what
1: so she goes to UCLA where she initially plans to study journalism during her first year in college, though, she switches her focus to theater and English, which is her goal to be a playwright. She loved theater. She wanted to go to New York and be on stage, which is so funny for somebody in Hollywood. I feel like people on the East Coast want to be on Broadway, and people in Hollywood are like, I want to be in the movies. Yeah, you know. Absolutely. So for her to be in Hollywood and be like, I want to be on the East Coast yeah. <laughs> is so interesting to me. She found out that during her theater degree, she had to take an acting course. And she's like, I wasn't really ready for that and the whole acting thing, but I had Mm -hmm. to do it. So I just went and did it. And during her first performance, she had a sudden impulse to read her lines in a different accent as a character instead of as her. She's like, don't ask me why. I just decided to read in an accent. And the audience response like moved her deeply everybody's laughing and she said that that laugh felt like she was wrapped in a warm hug and she spent the rest of her
0: life chasing those hugs I have heard comedians talk about that that it's like so addicting to make people laugh like it's like nothing that you've ever experienced which
1: I can't even imagine I can't either and it's also like the type of thing where most Comedians, I feel like it's a pattern that they come from some sort of background of struggle.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I, I, there's this great quote. I don't know who said it, but it's like, I think it's like a meme or something. It's like, Oh, did you have a normal childhood or are you funny? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So
1: check on your funny friends. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're not okay. <laughs> So during her time in college, she performed in several university productions, garnering recognition for her as a comedian, but also musical abilities. I think because she's funny, we forget how good of a singer she is.
0: I'd never thought of her like that. She is so, so talented.
1: Like, and we'll get to it later, but like her and Julie Andrews are like really good friends and they like (sighs) sing together on stage and it's not weird. I
0: love that. They
1: sound like the same. Their voices are just amazing. Um, But again, she was really uncomfortable acting because she felt like she wasn't classically Hollywood beautiful. And people even said to her, including her mom, you can always write no matter what you look like. And she was like, God, that fucking hurt my feelings like yeah. that's not nice to say to somebody especially like a young woman in college
0: no especially like yeah that's like the opposite direction it should be like no oh my gosh like go for it Do are it. you kidding me yeah. like not like yeah you're right maybe you should be backstage like, <laughs> What you should be crew not cast yeah
1: <laughs> During her junior year of college, though, um, she got asked to perform. Instead of, like, taking the final exam, some of them were like, we want you to do this performance, obviously, Mm -hmm. because it's like a theater degree. So she's asked to perform at this house for a party with, like, all these ritzy people. And she does the performance. She does a good job. And then she, like, goes over to the food table and is, like, stuffing cookies in her purse for her grandmother. (laughs) And this, like, really rich husband and wife start to approach her. And she's like, shit, they're going to yell at me to put the cookies back. It's going to (laughs) be so embarrassing. But they come up and compliment her and ask her about her future plans. She says, I've always wanted to go to New York and be a playwright and try my hand at musical comedy and just musical theater. And on the spot, the guy gives Carol and her boyfriend each (gasps) $1,000 loan, like interest free loan. Oh my God. Go to New York. That's amazing. Now there's a couple stipulations. Okay. One has to be repaid within five years. Okay. Two. Um, if you ever become famous, you must help other people achieve their dreams by donating to them. Oh, that's awesome. And three, you can never ever tell anyone my name.
0: <gasps> so we still don't know. Mm-mm. Oh <laughs> my What is up with all these mystery people <laughs> handing her money? I want mystery people handing me money. Heck? <laughs>
1: Come on. Um, if you want to anonymously donate <laughs> things to us on Patreon. <laughs> um, but yeah, she... The only thing that, like, kind of, there's only one clue at some point where she said in an interview more recently, he wanted to help me the way he was helped in this country. So he may have immigrated here is, like, the only thing we might have. Yeah. But we know he was wealthy and with his wife at this party. So that could probably narrow down the list, but I wasn't going to investigate. Yeah. (laughs) Now, at this time, also, her dad is really sick. Like, the Mm. alcoholism is getting to him. She goes and visits him, and she's like, Dad, this is great. I'm going to New York. Like, I love you. This is what happened. I have $1,000. And he was like, oh, I'm so proud of you but i should have been the one that could have given you that money so it's like you know he definitely feels guilty and she does say that her dad is an alcoholic he wasn't a mean alcoholic he wasn't abusive he wasn't jovial it just kept him from getting work and it ruined his mom and his marriage and you know like there's not always i think sometimes we think of
0: alcoholism
1: as like an abuse situation but sometimes it's just like a you can't function in day-to-day life and that means you're neglecting me
0: yeah. Well, I think about that with a guy in um, Hamilton who's like just been an alcoholic forever in the area. And like the only thing he could do was just like stock the local liquor store and then it got bought out and then he lost that job. He like literally can't, you know, and then it's just like sad because it's like there's not much. It's not again. It's not like he's a bad person. Everyone just talks about how nice he is, but it has ruined his life. Yeah. Like it's there's really, nothing he can do. It's difficult because, yeah, like. I know there's another guy who my parents help out sometimes who like my dad will take him up to the liquor store on a Sunday. The one that sells on Sundays because we're in Maryland because he's like so sick and shaking if he doesn't get anything. Yeah, Like it's so sad. It
1: is. And that's kind of what's
0: happening. And she
1: she's not the type that's gonna stick around Mm -hmm. for her sick parents like also they didn't raise her she was raised by her grandmother her nanny so um, she's like dad I love you I'm going to New York like peace see you later she goes to New York he dies pretty shortly after Mm. so her dad passes away from alcoholism or things related to alcoholism yeah So, this is the 1950s. Carol moves to New York with her college boyfriend, who's also an aspiring actor. They don't live together, though. This is too early for that in history. (laughs) Um, She lives in a New York boarding house with other young, talented females trying to make it into acting. Her boarding house is called the Rehearsal Club. After her first year in New York, she's like a hat-check girl her and the other girls are failing at acting jobs. The auditions at this point are like, you sing two notes and we're like next, you know, like they don't even want to see you. It's Mm -hmm. like Simon Cowell's all over the place. Yeah. (laughs) Carol comes home to the girls living at the rehearsal club. And it's like, Hey, if we can't get into shows, why don't we just like, throw our own damn show here. And they're all like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's make a show. So they together make a show and they put on the rehearsal club review on March 3rd, 1955. They mailed invites to agents and stars throughout New York. Tons of people show up. Now she only really had like a minor role in the thing, but she put it all together and this opened doors for a ton of girls in the rehearsal club. They like got offers to like be on shows and be in plays. That's amazing. Yeah, they, like, took their life into their own hands and were like, fine, you won't cast us, we'll cast ourselves. Oh, that's so cool. Very cool. (laughs) She got a role from that starring opposite Buddy Hatchet in the short-lived sitcom Stanley. Carol also, this same year, married her college sweetheart, Don, and, again, he was also an aspiring actor. After Carol was in the show Stanley, she found herself unemployed for a short time again. But bounced back quickly because she gained fame being a highly popular performer in the New York City circuit of cabarets and nightclubs. She's like, I'm going to bounce around and do my thing. I can change outfits. I can change accents. I can fit into wherever you need me to fit in. And she got enough attention doing that that she was invited to do her performance and her popular sketches on The Tonight Show, on The Ed Sullivan Show, on some of the first game shows that were ever on TV. And she just starts to achieve some small success. And then her mother dies. And Carol, she's not super broken, but she's sad. Because her mom was definitely a martyr, Definitely mm-hmm. like a what if person, like, what if we had just done this? What if I had just yeah. not had you? What if blah, 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 blah. So Carol just feels sad that not only neither of her parents are ever got to see her fame, but also like they never got to achieve their own dreams because they couldn't get help for what was wrong with them. Yeah. Because nobody knew at the time. She got her first true taste of fame, though, when she appeared on Broadway in the 1959 musical Once Upon a Mattress, <laughs> for which she was nominated for a Tony, her first go-round. <gasps> what? Uh-huh. That's insane. And it's funny because she had to be elegant because she's the princess who can't fall asleep mm-hmm. on the mattress. And you have to be a physical comedian because you have to, like, flop around and, like, be upset. But then yeah. it's Broadway, so you have to be able to sing. You have to kind of be able to
0: dance. Yeah. And you have to, like, do those flop. Around it was like very controlled. Like right. it is such an art being on stage because your actions have to reach someone in the back of the theater. Yeah, you know who else had that role sarah jessica parker there's so many people yeah
1: and she she actually says she loves seeing renditions of once upon a mattress and she loves watching it it's one of her favorite roles to watch Mm -hmm. and sarah jessica parker is that amazing style of actress where she she can dance she can act
0: she's got the face she's got the body and the voice right she's such a good singer and nobody (laughs) because she just doesn't
1: do it like on a regular basis so It's one of those, I was actually watching, um, and we'll talk more about the Q&A sessions that Carol has, but I was watching a and a session where a little girl raised her hand and was like, hey, I just played this role in my school play, and like, I was wondering if you could sing a little bit for us. And she goes, only if you'll come up here and sing it with me. <gasps> And then oh she gets gosh. to sing the song. With Carol Burnett. Yeah. That's so cool. Because that, that play, of course, opens shy, you know, like, <laughs> I'm so shy. And it's like, no, you're not shy, <laughs> yeah. psycho. It's like it opens with a joke. So you need yeah. somebody like Carol. So then that same year, she becomes a regular on the variety show, the Gary Moore show. And this is a role that she did win an Emmy for. She played a variety of characters. She's also kind of writing some of the sketches. Most notably, one of her famous alter egos becomes this. So she kind of realizes that being funny isn't sexy around this time. And we can talk more about that later. But she feels like a lot of women don't feel like they're sexy. So she plays this like maid who's like cleaning a building. And then when everybody leaves for the day, she does like a sultry dance <laughs> with like her mom <laughs> and like flings it around the stage. It's really funny. But it's like slapstick and sexy and funny and cute all together. So mm-hmm. that's one of her famous acts from that show. But as Carol rose to headliner status, she started to pick up some pretty famous friends. <laughs> One of them, the aforementioned Julie Andrews. They just are so close. And I read Julie Andrews' memoir, and she just brings up Carol in, like, every other chapter. They've <sighs> spent so many years together bouncing back and forth between Hollywood and Broadway because that's also what Julie Andrews did. Yeah. She's on Broadway, she's on, you know, the West End in Mm -hmm. England, she's in Hollywood, and Carol's kind of doing the same thing. But they decide, you know what would be great if um, we did a show together at Carnegie Hall... (laughs) So there is a special called Julie and Carol at Carnegie Hall and you can like look up pieces of it online. Oh my gosh. But it's so cute because Julie is so prim and proper and Carol is so brash and yeah. it's just like the perfect seesaw balance act of them. Just being so goofy together, yeah. And
0: I feel like it's so like America versus Britain, yeah. Like.
1: <laughs> and there's a real, there's a really funny story that I actually didn't write in my notes, but that Julie Andrews put in her memoir that like her and Carol were like acting out these scenes, and they were doing something in a hallway one time, and there's like a kissing portion of it, and they like go and do the kissing scene, and then the elevator opens, and like people. <laughs> Julie Andrews and Carol Burnett are just kissing <laughs> in the hallway. <laughs> They're like, this is absurd. Oh, my God. Julie Andrews telling that story is so funny. <laughs> I loved it. Um, so, unfortunately, her and her first husband, Don, had been separated for a while. He was a great guy, but they were just young, and they grew apart, and mm-hmm. it wasn't really working out. But as Julie and her are hanging out, Julie's like, Julie had also gone through a divorce. She's like, is there anyone that you're interested in? And Carol's like, yes, actually one of the producers of this show, his name is Joe Hamilton. And on May 4th, 1963, Carol married her producer. (sighs) Um, He was also recently divorced and they ended up having three children together (gasps) through the course of their marriage. Carrie, Jody and Aaron Hamilton one was an actress, one's a producer and an actress, and one's a singer. So Wow, just they, all
0: in the biz. They made some <laughs> famous, famous kids.
1: She also is checking all the boxes. She co-stars on an episode of Twilight Zone. You know, you got <laughs> to get in there. <laughs> she then went to perform on Broadway's musical Fade Out, Fade In, which you've never heard of for a reason. Because she had to drop out because of an injury Mm. and um then she came back to do it but then left again because this variety show called entertainers called and she loves variety shows Mm -hmm. but then fade in fade out sued her because breach of contract and Uh, she was like whatever and then their show failed (laughs) so around this time she picks up another super famous friend lucille ball and lucille or lucy becomes her mentor and the two women remained close friends and appeared on each other's shows several times. Lucy would send Carol flowers every year on her birthday. And on the morning of Carol's 56th birthday in 1989, she awoke to find out that Lucy had passed away on her birthday. Oh my God, I didn't know that. But then later in the day, she received the flowers that had been pre ordered, and the note read, Happy birthday, kid. Love oh you. Oh my
0: gosh. Because they really are like the two just redheaded women of comedy with like, elastic faces. Yes. You know what I
1: mean? Like they can move the muscles on their face like nobody else can do. Oh,
0: I just, and I love that instead of giving into like the cattiness that Hollywood wants you to have, like they were like, no, we just love each other. Like we're not competition. No girls support, like, girl support, girl support girls, support girls, support girls. Exactly. I, ugh, that's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> oh and gosh. the, um,
1: the I heavily suggest this documentary because there's just so many funny, famous people like commenting on it. It's like yeah. Betty White and Julie Andrews. Oh, little...
0: Betty White loved <laughs> Carol Burnett. I, I remember know. that from my research.
1: Yeah, so it's just a lot of funny, fun people like talking about yeah. the Carol Burnett show, which gives you good perspective because they're also actors and actresses, so they get how hard it is. Mm-hmm. So... In 1967, CBS offers Carol to get this, like, comedy, weekly comedy series. But there had been a glitch in her contract, which is good for her. Because it was a thing that said before she does any, like, series for them, she's allowed to try a variety show. It's, like, in the fine, <gasps> I fine <love> print. That. <laughs> and she's like, so they had to do it. But they did not want to do it because they believed that variety shows are something men do it had only been men to that point men had only been successful doing it there's no headliner female variety show at all anywhere Mm -hmm. and um they were sure it would not be successful (laughs) carol came into the first day of work and said this isn't supposed to be successful so let's have fun and it like and that's how it
0: made it successful exactly exactly
1: (laughs) exactly
0: Well, because when you're not trying to figure out like, okay, how do we make money for this show? Mm -hmm. It's just like, you know, that's not the attitude you're supposed to go into it with. Let's make people laugh. I love that. And let's make ourselves laugh. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) in its debut year,
1: people are blown out of the water. (laughs) The show garnered 23 Emmy Awards. Oh my God. And went on to be nominated for Emmys and Golden Globes every year it was on air. That's
0: insane. Every year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the ensemble cast was Tim Conway, Harvey Korman, Lyle Wagner, and Vicki Lawrence. And just these people are so funny. They're making each other laugh. They're laughing on stage. They're laughing off stage. They've got tons of costumes. And Carol, she struck a chord with viewers because she's parodying movies that they've seen. Shows that they've seen. Things that they get. Because she grew up like the normies, you know? She's like, I'm one of you. I get what's funny. I get that I can write a sketch with an alcoholic mom. Yeah. I get that I can write a sketch about being in a one-room apartment where there's a rat on the stove. Like, she's
0: yeah. funny because she gets what
1: people are going
0: through. Yeah. I also I just remembered her, like, famous, like, gone with oh the wind Oh, my God. Sketch. <laughs>
1: If you have not seen this, okay, she goes upstairs to change into the draperies. Did you know that the other actors didn't know she was going to do that? No. Yeah. <laughs> so she's supposed to change into the draperies, but she puts the literal curtain rod, like, across her back, like it's an emperor cloak, and comes down the steps. And he she's says, like,
0: so serious. <laughs> and
1: the line is, I saw it in the window, and I couldn't pass it off." <laughs> I laughed about that for like twenty minutes. That's so
0: funny, God! That and, is so funny. And this the thing; it's it's insane to me that she's creating shit that was just as funny then it is <laughs> as, as it is now. Because she also, I think, can spot cultural touchstones that are long lasting. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. she's like, "Oh, yeah. oh people have gone with the wind now; they're gonna love Gone with the Wind twenty years from
1: now." <laughs> <laughs> yes. She also did a ton of musical numbers on the show, but refused to sing unless she was in character. Mm. She doesn't sing as herself, ever. She only sings as someone else. And then, of course, her sketch her sketch is about family drama everybody loves. They're like yeah. tragedy, comedy, like very mm-hmm. Shakespearean, and that like shit's falling apart and it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> she opened most of her shows with an impromptu question and answer with the audience lasting a few minutes. Other variety shows did this, but she decided to put it on air. I'm going to tape it. I'm going to do this question answer, and I'm going to tape it. And she's ad-libbing answers to all these questions. Oh, my gosh. And it's absurd. Like... People would ask her really personal things and she would have to come up with a funny response. I don't know how people do things like that. No. And multiple times was asked to do her famous Tarzan yells. So she would have to like sometimes oblige and just do it. (laughs) And she also ended the show by tugging on her left ear which was a message to her grandmother that she was doing well and she loved her. And even after her grandmother passed away she did that every time until (gasps) the show ended. That's so sweet. She did remember the last moments of her grandmother and this will give you like an eye into her grandmother mother's life like joe hamilton her husband was visiting her grandmother before she died and she's like pointing out the spiders in the corner and talking about how they're going at it every couple minutes <laughs> and joe was like what are you talking about and she's just like this is carol's grandmother this yeah. is why she's the way she is she's open and funny and like oh weird so um, that was funny <laughs> people also often reference how brave she was to act like this on tv it was unladylike unsexy and unappealing for women to be funny still today people treat female comedians like they're less funny Mm -hmm. and then women just general women when they are funny are seen as less appealing to the male species
0: yeah it's kind of like oh it, it kind of moves them from like a hot girl to like one of the guys. Right, if you have like a sense of humor,
1: <laughs> and it's like now that's not that's not cute. It's, yeah, it's loud and brash and
0: annoying almost. Yeah, exactly. It's just yeah, it's not taken well a lot.
1: <laughs> no, it isn't, and it. She also does acknowledge that she's like, listen, I wasn't a super like lib feminist at the time. Like, uh-huh. I that's not where I was, but. I also, over the years, grew up. She was, like, 34 when she started the show and had it for 11 years. So by the end, she's like, you know, we're not going to write that joke because I don't like the way it comes off. Mm. She wouldn't write jokes that made people feel bad or that were insulting. She was like, I want
0: it to be funny, not mean. Well, and I feel like that's one of the things that, like, female comedians bring sometimes. It's like, you know what? This was the old standard because it was all fucking dudes writing. So, yeah. like, let's change it so it's funny for everyone and not just you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know,
1: she she's not only coming from that place as a woman, but she's also, when she's on the show, will read the sketches and be like, you know, Jim needs a better joke on page seven. She wasn't about stealing all the good jokes for herself, which you often see happen on variety yeah. shows. People want the sketch they wrote. They want the sketch
0: they star in. Mm-hmm. And she was about making the whole show work. She kind of reminds me of like an Amy Poehler. Yes. Like, I feel like Amy Poehler has that mindset of like, let's bring people up with comedy, not tear people down and separate people. Right.
1: And let's make us all have a funny joke instead of like, I get every funny line. Exactly. Yeah. So, After this and like kind of during this in the 80s, she starts to get roles on film like she becomes an actress in her own right. And she says that the first time she got a script mailed to her and she opened it and it was like for a serious drama. She was like, is this for me? She had to like check the envelope to see if it was actually mailed to her. But she appeared in several dramatic roles, mostly on television movies. But she was Beatrice O'Reilly in a film about her life as a woman fighting alcoholism. So that's close oh, to wow. home. Yeah. She was also in the film Annie as, like, the evil, like... Mrs. <gasps> Hennig? Yeah. Hennigy or whatever her yes. name is. Hennigy. <laughs> Hennigy. And at some point, she had to get surgery on her jaw because of, like, a... Se- Pretty severe overbite situation that was happening. Yeah. And then Carol like wanted to refilm the whole thing because she was like, My jawline looks different. I wanted to match. And are like, just just act. Yeah. Um, but she also does a lot of voiceovers. She did a voiceover in Horton Hears a Who. Toy Story ends. Scooby-doo. Who Toy, was she in Toy Story? Toy Story 4. She's like a Oh, okay. And she's like a thing that's actually named Carol Burnett. There's like, <laughs> it's like this isn't, we're not even gonna joke. Um She was actually also the first celebrity to appear on Sesame Street. What? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And she was on Password. She did sketches for a show called Mama's Family. She was Helen Hunt's mom in Mad About You, (laughs) which she won an Emmy for. Like, what? What? She was a fan of All My Children and got to be on the show. (laughs) She was also on Desperate Housewives, Law & Order, Glee, and Hawaii 5 Wow. There you go. I just had to list that because that was beautiful (laughs) after 30 years off Broadway. She was back on in moon over Buffalo for which she was nominated for a Tony again, but there were struggles in her personal life. She and Joe got a divorce because Mm -hmm. they were having a really hard time because their 13 year old daughter, Carrie had a really bad drug addiction. Oh no. Carol again blamed herself. What did I do? What didn't I do? I wasn't there enough as a famous person that had this crazy schedule um they put her into rehab multiple times they tried to get her clean obviously the couple got a divorce but when carrie was 17 carol put her into rehab for a final time and carrie hated her but carol said i had to love her enough to let her hate me oh, and that um me like a ton of ugh, it hurts so bad and carrie did get clean and went on to be a talented stage and screen actress who appeared with her mother on several occasions. Oh my Carrie and Carol started writing a stage play together about her time in Hollywood as a child and her dysfunctional family. And the play was like super anticipated by critics. And the play's happening and Carrie's excited and Carol's excited and everything's going well. And Carrie gets a terminal diagnosis of lung cancer. No. And Carol is broken. She has to finish the play without her daughter. After the daughter, she feels like she just saved from death, is now dying again. Oh, my God. And there's nothing she can do. Obviously, Julie Andrews has also struggled with addiction in her children and dealing with the death of stepchildren um, and said Carol never got over it. She's never been the same since she lost Carrie. Other than showbiz, though, Carol's really stayed away from the spotlight. She received tons of honorary awards. She did win the Mark Twain Prize for Humor. God, and I would hope
0: so. Like, my, my God. Myself. And this is how
1: many people came, up, came to speak about it to, to honor her that day. It was Julie Andrews, Vicki Lawrence, Tim Conway, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Maya Rudolph, Rashida Jones, <laughs> and Martin Short came to honor her for that um carol did get married a third time to brian miller he's a percussional drummer at hmm. um the hollywood bowl orchestra he is 23 years younger than her i
0: thought you were gonna say 23 years old no, so he's like, 23 oh my years god, younger
1: than her and she does comment she's like if i was 40 and he was 20 we wouldn't have gotten along but like you know, 20 years is less the older you get. Oh, like, we've yeah, seen the same shit. <laughs> in, um, and they're still happy together. In 2017, CBS aired the Carol Burnett show's 50th anniversary. Also, you can watch it on MeTV. They've been airing it since 2015, yeah. just in case you want to know. She spoke and said, they said it was a man's game because it hadn't been done. But that doesn't mean it couldn't be done. In 2019, the Golden Globes created an award in her name, and um, the award is for achievements in the career of television. Burnett was also announced, obviously, as the first recipient of the award, and Steve Carell presented her with the award, saying for more than 50 years, comedy trailblazer Carol Burnett has been breaking barriers while making us laugh. But Carol has always struggled with family. In August 2020, her and her husband had to petition to get guardianship of their grandson because her other daughter was struggling oh. with an addiction. It did hold, and her daughter is getting help, but they are currently raising their 13-year-old grandson, and she's, like, in her mid-80s. Oh, my God. In keeping with her promise to the anonymous benefactor who assisted her in 1954, she contributes to scholarship programs at UCLA and at the University of Hawaii. Because of her life and her struggles and her success and her joy, people pretty much agree that she is apple pie, hot dogs, baseball, and Carol Burnett. She is America.
0: And that's her story so far. Oh my gosh, I love that. I I she's so wonderful.
1: She's multifaceted in so many ways I wasn't yeah. thinking about. It. I was like, "Okay, funny Carol Burnett. She's a meet, a comedian, she had a show." Yeah. yeah. And it's like then you get the story of, like, I was poor as hell. My family struggled with addiction from day one to day now. Yeah. Like, she's never escaped that in her life.
0: And she's yeah. still
1: fighting and making people laugh and being, like, such a amazing— She's just an amazing person. Ugh,
0: that's incredible. All right. Well, we're going from comedy to tragedy. This is gonna be quite <laughs> it's gonna be really shift. sad. Ugh. So we have to get a couple more drinks. I'm
1: glad we didn't do this in the opposite order. Though. I'm so
0: happy we didn't <laughs> do that. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. Bye. We are back with another drink. It's beautiful for a sad, sad, sad story. Sad story. Um, But this cocktail is really fun and it even comes with a little sidekick like I like to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Allie, do you want to know what you're about to drink? I do. It's beautiful. So this is called Sylvia's Spring Martini. So it is two ounces of vodka, an ounce of dry vermouth, an ounce of pink limoncello, uh, juice from half a lemon. You do a little drop of honey, and then you pour just a little bit of maraschino cherry juice right down the middle, and you serve it with a side of potato chips. Mm. And these are like <laughs> kettled. chips. Oh, I uh, always do kettles. That's Cheers. the only way to Cheers.
1: Mm. Mm. Wow, it has a surprising like aftertaste a little. Yeah. I love lemon, I love honey. Mm-hmm. I but the
0: the cherry hits you in the back. What's hitting you? I think it's the dry vermouth cuz mm-hmm. we don't use dry vermouth like ever. Not nearly <laughs> enough. <laughs> and I think it's something that like I wanted it to kind of ground it and like make it similar to a regular martini. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted the whole drink to feel really like bright and light. And pink, because pink is Sylvia's favorite color, mm. um, and then the potato chips will be explained a little bit later um but but yeah, so <laughs> I just wanted a really nice, fun, bright drink, <laughs> yeah well, you hit it out of the park this week. this one's great, thanks, and what do you know about Sylvia Plath? Okay, so I know Sylvia
1: Plath was a poet mm-hmm. uh I know that she was a jovial person, but also a troubled person, mm-hmm i know that she took her own life mm-hmm. and i know that her and gloria steinem went to college together
0: <laughs> <laughs> never that from our episode oh, that's right no. uh, she, like, didn't come up in my research no 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 because uh, gloria steinem
1: brought it up after the fact like they didn't oh, even know yeah. each other in college she just yeah. knew like i was at this college the same exact time as sylvia black
0: that's so funny isn't that like a what a what a graduating class what that's wild <laughs> Um yeah so obviously we are going to be talking about self-harm and suicide in this story so take care when listening um cuz i know it's a really difficult topic um but uh let's get into it I'm ready. uh so i got most of this from two separate podcasts one is class a felons b films and c cups which i love that name <laughs> um the girl who does that does that did some really fantastic research like she was the only podcast that had actual information like her childhood and stuff which i really appreciated like it felt like she read the biography And then did the podcast. For some people, it's really hard to find about their childhood. Yeah, it really is. So I felt like I I just got so many more details from that show. And then another podcast called No Man's Land, um, which I also love that name. Uh, (laughs) um, I got a lot from them, too. They were more so of like the um, let's talk about her life in a broad sense, which really helped me kind of tune into her and her personality. Um, Okay. Sylvia Plath was born three weeks early on October 27th. <laughs> Sorry, October 17th is not her birthday. Um, 1932, a year apart from Carol, which is bananas to me.
1: That's always what happens when somebody passes young like that. Yeah, you don't think of them in like the same Because it's like Marilyn context. Monroe and Queen Elizabeth II are the same birth yeah, year.
0: Yeah, it's really weird. weird. Um, she was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and she was just keen to enter the world (laughs) her mother aurelia was a second generation austrian woman um, and her father otto was a german entomologist and a professor of biology at boston university Mm. Um, so he is a really big science guy he wrote this apparently like really groundbreaking book on bumblebees um (laughs) save them um (laughs) Uh, so there isn't much about their relationship. But apparently Otto was Aurelia's professor at the University of Boston. She was 21 years younger than him. Um, but apparently it was like a whirlwind romance. I think he like left his first wife for her. Like this is all very quick. Um, they get married and within their first year they have uh, Sylvia. So it's like
1: quick consensual.
0: Very Yeah. Very okay. consensual. Um and education, because they were both like very well educated, it was very important in uh, the way they wanted to bring up their children. So Aurelia took it upon herself to really study the Montessori method and incorporate it into their household before the kids were even like in school. Mm-hmm. Like she was doing that from the beginning. She was like, you know what? I've been reading about this. I don't think we should have like scheduled feedings like the baby eats at two o'clock regardless. She's like, if the baby's hungry, the baby should eat. Like, right.
1: <laughs> And wait, who's Elizabeth Montessori?
0: <laughs> who knows this will never cover her we'll never know <laughs> that should um, be our last episode oh my gosh <laughs> that decide, would be so funny it we will decide be to go of off, awesome off air she <laughs> just keeps getting pushed um so Aurelia really took the credo of through education, we can build a priceless inner life. Like, she and Otto just really thought, like, if we educate them really well, like, they'll be more, like, stable people. Um, which, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. Right. doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, reading was a huge part of her childhood, which was great for Sylvia because she loved books. Even before she could read, her favorite activity was being read, too. <laughs> um But Otto was always busy with research and whatnot. So he was very in and out. And Sylvia was a child who, like, loved to please. Um, So she really kind of felt that in and outedness um, Mm. from her father. Um, So her mother would spend a lot of time with her. And they also spent a lot of time with Sylvia's grandparents who lived near the beach. So they spent a lot of time at the shore. Sylvia loved the beach. Um, and Aurelia would take her to plays and concerts so she could have a well-rounded childhood. Um, but it just didn't matter because when Otto was around, she was all about her dad. She was obsessed with being near him, hearing about his day, watching him grade papers and everything that Sylvia did. She wanted to tell her dad. Like Sylvia spoke at a very early age, I think because she just wanted to be heard by him. Mm. Um, and it just, it grew into this very intense need to overachieve. Um, she was always very devoted to whatever she was doing. Even like being a Girl Scout, she had all these merit badges that she was always showing off. Most of them to do with reading. Um, and in 1937, her little brother Warren was born, which Sylvia did not take very well. Wow. <sighs> Uh, She said she had a lot of rage towards him because suddenly she's not the center of the universe anymore. And uh, the very little attention that her dad has is now split. And she really doesn't like that. And split
1: now with a boy, like Like boy or a baby,
0: like there's a lot going on. And sometimes she would even make Warren cry on purpose just to like show the juxtaposition between a well-behaved toddler and a crying, screaming baby. (laughs) (laughs) But soon she felt even more pushed aside because Warren was a really sickly baby. So he needed a lot more attention. And then her father came down with a really serious illness so the household was crazy and they just ended up having to send Sylvia away to live with the grandparents for a bit.
1: Oh, so it's like all she wants is their attention, and now it's
0: like She's literally being sent away. Right. Um, so Otto is a really interesting guy. Um, and he is like convinced that he had lung cancer. He goes, My friend had lung cancer, that's that's what I have. But that's in- not how it works. No. <laughs> um, in fact, what he had was diabetes. <gasps> But because he had waited so long to get treatment for it, um, basically he found out because he, like, stubbed his toe and, like, broke it open and it got an infection. And he went and they're like, you have horrible diabetes. We're going to have to amputate your leg up to your thigh. Uh, I'm terrified of diabetes. Me too. Number one fear in life. Oh, my gosh. Other than, like, sharks and spiders. It's so scary. Like, my, like, eight-year-old, like, niece, Mm -hmm. Dan's daughter, got child what is it juvenile diabetes oh it's so
1: scary and i'm terrible. we have like a friend's mom who's like super healthy and fit and they call it like invisible diabetes because like usually you connect it i'll tell you exactly who in a minute but usually you connect it to people who are like overweight or like quote unquote haven't taken care of themselves but like You can consume a lot of sugars and still be skinny as fuck. Like if you have two martinis every night or like wine like I do every day, like you can get diabetes from overdoing your body with sugar. Oh my gosh.
0: So he gets his leg amputated, the household's kind of crazy, and then he ends up passing away due to complications from the amputation. Oh. A week and a half after Sylvia's eighth birthday.
1: Oh, that's terrible. What a baby. Horrible.
0: And the whole thing hit Sylvia like a ton of bricks. And But she like wasn't really showing her cards. She just said, I'll never speak to God again. And then she went to school. And she came back from school that day with a document that she had written up for her mother. She said, I need you to sign this. And it stated like I, Aurelia <laughs> like Plath, will never get married again. I'll never remarry and she's got a huge daddy complex oh yeah I mean one of her most famous poems is called daddy (laughs) I
1: mean dads are fun I will say like dads are definitely more fun as a child because they aren't disciplining you yeah and also like when it's time to sit down and do something because you know I'm tired as fuck from doing the dishes and the cleaning and cooking Mm -hmm. they're going to be like daddy will you come play yeah because after 10 times of asking mommy and me being like no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm done playing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, of course, she has a daddy complex. She loves him. He's
0: never around, and now he's dead. And now he's dead. So he'll never be around again. Like it's the ultimate, like, like uh, kind of like unrequited, like, relationship. Right. So, and even though Aurelia is like still young and definitely like could have found another partner, she signed it to appease her just distressed daughter. Um, but Sylvia would never forgive her mother for what came next. Aurelia didn't want her eight-year-old daughter and her five-year-old son to be subject to an open casket funeral, so she didn't allow them to come to the funeral. That's bullshit. That's closure. It is, and Sylvia felt like she never got that, and she was just angry forever at her mother for that, and her feelings right now are just, they're very strong. They're very complicated, and she wouldn't fully understand why, until many years later, because another thing that her mother wasn't telling her was that depression ran in her bloodline. It was in her family. Members members of her family, including her grandmother, had been hospitalized for it. Like, it was a thing. I know it runs in my family, too. Like because I know that I can be conscious of it. Right. But Sylvia was never given that opportunity. Well, it's
1: one of those and things. And also they weren't
0: talking about it. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that's like considered a quote unquote invisible, um, yeah, disability to live with, like anxiety mm-hmm. or, you know, depression, like things that even, even hearing loss, those mm-hmm. are things you can't see on a person that
0: they may have. Yeah, absolutely. They may have to deal with. They yeah. don't have yeah, 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 They don't control the person. <laughs> um, so after Otto's death, the family kind of went into financial turmoil. All of Otto's savings and any money they got from the insurance policy on, his, um, on him had been used to pay his medical bills um, at the end of his life, which left the family with nothing. Aurelia got a job as a foreign language teacher. Um, eventually, she moved on to Boston University, um, and her parents moved in with them to help out with the kids. Um, so again, like kind of, we'll talk about this, but like, kind of similar to Carol, like, three generations all suddenly living under the same roof Mm. um and in this difficult time Sylvia turned to writing and she actually published her first poem in the Boston Herald's children's section when she was eight and a half months old so like literally months after her father passed away she publishes her first poem wow and then after that she won a one dollar prize in an art contest for her drawing of a woman wearing a hat (laughs) hey
1: if you're not gonna enter Then don't compete. Yeah.
0: So she just throws herself into all sorts of endeavors. She's designing clothes for her paper dolls. She's making greeting cards under the company name Plathmark, which I love. And she's babysitting to earn money. She is just, I think she's kind of feeling like I have to do this myself. Like Mm. I am going to be self-sufficient. Like Sylvia was just not going to let these traumatic events shape her future she was determined to thrive which i also think is something we don't give credit to a lot of people who suffer from like depression and bipolar disorder it's like it like i feel like people are like oh like they just like sit in bed all day and do nothing it's like we'll learn like sylvia was out there mm. she was so active and like I just feel like we don't attribute these qualities to people who suffer with depression. And, like, I just want to make it clear, like, she was really determined to fucking make it in this world.
1: I I think a lot of times uh, people struggling with um, issues like that have to wake up every day and make the decision. Oh, yeah. You have to make a decision to live in in the life that you want to live because otherwise, like, it, it will control you.
0: Oh, yeah. And, like, sometimes it totally did overtake her. And sometimes even if she wanted to get up and do things like she couldn't, but like it was a struggle every day. Um, but so she is doing all this. She's winning tons of awards when she's in junior high and high school. She got amazing grades. Like she's so smart. Uh, but her feelings towards her mother are worsening. And when Sylvia was 15, her mother is offered a life changing job. She, was asked to be the dean at Northwestern University.
1: Shit, her mom is, like, going places. She really
0: is. Like, I feel really bad because did Aurelia make some mistakes? Like, absolutely. But, like, I also feel like Sylvia is putting a lot of, like, her dad issues on her mom. Mm-hmm. Also, why aren't more people named Aurelia? It's a really good name. Um, much better than Renesme. Um
1: <laughs> Wow. You Go call her to- Ari.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. sorry to bring Twilight drama into this <laughs> listen um, it's always applicable <laughs> <laughs> um, it, this job would have meant just a much more prestigious position and a lot more money for this struggling family like really it's like oh my gosh I wouldn't have to pinch pennies and scrimp and save and live with my fucking parents anymore like this would be amazing but when she talked to her kids about it Sylvia said no absolutely not she screamed at her mother, telling her that since this job would require more work, she would basically be orphaning her children, leaving them with two dead parents just for her own selfish desires. It sounds like
1: halfway through a sitcom. I know. When then they fix it by the end. But they don't, and Aurelia turned down
0: the job. Oh, no. Don't let a teenager do that. I know, and I feel bad because I, I feel like Aurelia can see it. She's like, my daughter is struggling, and like, I feel like she's trying to not make it worse. She's like, Okay, like, if I just yeah. like,
1: she's trying to be a good she's, mom, she is trying to be. And a good there's mom. no guidebook,
0: no, there's not,
1: there's not any what to expect when your kids yeah. are teenagers
0: yeah. and have depression. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Maybe there is now, who knows? Uh, um, I'm sure there is now, yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> um, But other than at home, Sylvia was thriving just like she wanted. She was getting published in Seventeen Magazine and the Boston Globe and the christian seventeen
1: magazine's that old? Yes it is. Tell me more. Isn't that bananas? (laughs) That is that's the most shocking thing I've learned this evening. (laughs) I know.
0: And can you believe it? Girls have been seventeen fucking forever. (laughs) No, Um, I thought they were twenty one (laughs) forever. I've never felt more old than when I went into a forever 21 the other day. I was like, none of these dresses are for me. The lights are way <laughs> too bright in the changing room. I and mean, they I... don't have doors. She was like, Oh no, they don't, they, they don't have knobs on the door. She was like, you can just grab the top of it. And like, <laughs> what if you're short? Exactly. Grab I guess you can bottom? just burst out. <laughs> <laughs> um, And also, she was published by the Christian Science Monitor, whatever that is. I hate it. I think it's like a famous magazine. So, (laughs) she's also getting to be more popular in school. She joined a sorority in her senior year of high school, and apparently, she had already gone on 16 dates. (laughs) Wow. She wrote about a lot of her dates, but she loved to, like, list them and rank them. Um, (laughs) Later, she would rank boys by, like, how good they were in bed. And you can tell that, like, if they were higher on the list, the relationship would last longer. She just, like, didn't suffer any fucking losers. I
2: love that. Um, And she would
0: also... But when she was in high school, she was just ranking them by, like, social standing. (laughs) She'd be like, well, this boy's parents make this amount of money. I'm like, girl, the internet did not exist. Like, how are you getting these figures?
1: (laughs) Excuse me, what are you worth? Um I'm sorry,
0: <laughs> do you have a 401k?
1: Um uh, is your car four-wheel drive yeah. or
0: <laughs> Was
1: it gifted to you? Do you have a Do you have a, a trust fund? Or... Does your mom have a
0: Birkin bag? I need to know for my list. Where do you vacation? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Or is it summering where do with you your summer? family? Where do, you, where do you go to <laughs> well, university? That's, a, that's actually a good question. Do you summer or do you vacation? Right. Very different. <laughs> Very different. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> if
1: a man did this, we would be murdering We'd be him. Absolutely murdering
0: him. him. This absolutely. Is a, but curious. listen, this is
1: the double standard that a women's podcast is allowed to have. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I also love she had a handy list of excuses if a boy called her out on a date and she didn't want to go. She'd be like, Ooh, sorry, I have tuberculosis tonight. That was literally one of them.
1: I spilled spaghetti on my sweater. Another one was,
0: (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, I have cancer. I can't. Which is
1: like, (laughs) Sylvia, what the hell? Oh my God, one time I told a boy my twin sister died. No.
0: (laughs) I'm not lying. Allie, that is unreal. Listen. How listen,
1: old were you? I was in 10th grade. It was before I dated Jake. Oh, my producer.
0: gosh. Okay. We're going to get to that story in Patreon if anyone wants to listen.
1: <laughs> to <some> Patreon. <laughs>
0: it's going to be oh. terrible. Okay. Okay. You um, will hate me. <laughs> Soon it was time for college and her hard work. Paid off. She was accepted into the prestigious Smith College for Women in Northampton, Massachusetts, and she received two separate scholarships.
1: Along with Gloria Steinem. Along <laughs> with Gloria
0: Steinem. Uh, one of her scholarships was funded by the novelist Olive Higgins Proudy, and she just took an immediate liking to Sylvia. Hell and yeah. she dedicated herself to being her mentor and personal advisor. Love it. So Sylvia started Smith in 1950 with two goals, to find a husband and to become the most accomplished student at Smith. This was an important factor for Sylvia. She always believed that she could do both. She never thought, she was like, well, I could be a wife or I could be a famous poet. She was always like, no, it's all, it was all one vision for her. She Always thought I can have it all. I really can. Glass slipper, glass ceiling. Yeah, exactly. Get it. And when she started something, she just had an immense amount of confidence in herself. She even wrote when she started Smith. She was like, "I think I'd like to call myself the girl who wanted to be God." <laughs> That's so bold, <laughs> yo. The frogs are a leaping. I know, straight into your <gasps> house, my girl. What? <laughs> And so she gets there. She is thriving socially. She has all these dates. Um, <laughs> she is also excelling academically. She becomes the editor of the Smith Review. And she's constantly, like, winning writing contests. Yo, also like,
1: that's a big deal to be, like, the editor
0: of your college yes. thing. Yes, it is. And I just, I think it's really crazy that like when you went know, we a contest today it's like maybe you like email something and she had to like write it type it mail it in and then just wait for a response and then she's making like tons of money she made like six hundred dollars in prize money in like Shit. her freshman year or something like that which I can't even imagine how much that was in 1950
1: I, w- I don't want to know what type of broken person can impress that many people it, it's, it's the un- only way
0: yeah like it's- your art has to be so full of hate yeah it's just unbelievable. And she, oh, and she was also volunteering to like tutor kids at a local school.
1: <laughs> and also, but, <laughs> and also she was like going to a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. Probably.
0: <laughs> but she soon realized that she was doing way too much and her body is giving out. She suffered from insomnia. She was so stressed that she would go three to five months at a time without getting a period. Like she so is much stressed. S- so stressed. So stressed out. She's doing like the most. And apparently this is when thoughts of suicide first entered her mind. She just kept thinking like, if I just end it, it'll all be over. And then I don't have to turn in that paper. I don't have to go to this thing. I don't have to send in my essay to this magazine. I can just stop. Yo, just don't turn it in. Yeah. yeah also, right. It's like, you can also just not turn it in. Yeah. That's not, totally cool. Just not like, do that. Just like, yeah. don't do it. But, like, that wasn't an option in her mind. She was like, no, I have to do all these things. Mm. She just thought that she had to do everything, be everything.
1: Interesting.
0: But she kept going. And in her third year at Smith College, she won a contest for Mademoiselle magazine. And she found that she would spend June of 1953 interning as a guest editor in Manhattan among 19 other young, bright women from all over the country. And she was so excited. The application process was really competitive, um, and they would ask really like tough questions like, could you describe your future husband? Um- <laughs> Get the fuck
1: out of here. That was not their question. It was.
0: Uh, Sylvia said, he'll be a tall, handsome man who would subscribe to every literary magazine there was because we'll both be fucking smart is was basically her answer oh, like yeah, fuck we'll her. both be smart that's great one time i got
1: asked in a random interview they were like if there was a huge pile of ice cream on a really hot day what would you
0: do ew what I'm sorry, was this the dating game in 1975? And I was like, I
1: don't understand what you're talking about.
0: That's (laughs) disgusting. Well, A, I wouldn't touch it because I don't need that goddamn ice cream. Well, number one, I would get in a bikini and then I would just writhe all over it. Is that (laughs) what I wanted you to say?
1: I don't. I think they were trying to see whether I would try to eat it all before it got wasted or I would waste it. And I was like, I'll absolutely waste that
0: ice cream. It's not for me. It's a mountain of ice cream. I don't want it. No. Disgusting. Okay. Disgusting. (laughs) Um, even after this very sexist question, <laughs> um, Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle. <laughs> okay. Mademoiselle. Mademoiselle. Uh, it you tatted. have to say it
1: like Lumiere in Beauty and the I'm Beast trying. at the beginning of Be Our Guest. Yes. Mademoiselle.
0: Mademoiselle. <laughs> Mademoiselle. <laughs> um, They touted themselves as, like, the magazine for smart young women, which seemed like the ideal place for a smart young woman such as Sylvia. Of course it is. (laughs) So, she goes to New York. She's living in an all-female boarding house because that was, like, literally all their options were at the time. Shut the fuck up. I know. Shut the fuck up. Among, like, other people who stayed there were, like, Joan Didion and, uh, like, other, like, very famous people, like, came through this place. Um, also, oh, gosh, uh, Car- Candace Bergman also stayed there. Like, it was just, like, a wild place where, like, all why sorts can't, of famous people passed through. Why can't
1: they all be like Madonna and just take over an abandoned
0: synagogue? <sighs> why can't they? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um <laughs> she gets this place, she splurges on brand new clothing to fit in at this fashion magazine. She is just like ready to make an impression. And she does. She stands out immediately and she is recognized as the most brilliant intern. She and Hathaway's it. She really does in Devil Wears product. And she is picked to work directly underneath the managing editor and she feels so honored. This is exactly what she is supposed to be doing. But it's not her lab. But then she keeps looking around and she realizes that like because they trust her more, they give her all the work. And all the other girls get to be fun interns and they're going to fashion shows and the ballet and they're going to visit TV show sets. Like you mean when you're good, people give you work and don't pay you for it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really upsetting. It's terrible. (laughs) And she's like, and that's the thing too. It's like, there's not even a monetary compensation right now. It's literally like you're all getting paid the same, but they get to go to a fashion show and you're stuck here writing until two in the morning. And she would like go back to the boarding house and she would slump into bed and be like, why the fuck am I doing this? Why be better if it means my life is worse? Like this fucking sucks. And she is just, again, finding herself in an extremely stressful situation. And she's feeling really isolated. You know, I mean, what are the, it's that famous saying, like, it's really lonely at the top. Like, she is at the top of her game, but she is feeling so alone. And, it was also the summer, and this might seem like a tangent, but it was the summer that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed. Um, so they were American citizens who were convicted of spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. And it happened that summer, and it is this jarring event that weighed really heavily on Sylvia. Um, and it eventually becomes the opening of the bell jar. Right. And it's, I just, I think the most upsetting thing to her Is that she was already feeling like alone in the office, alone in the boarding house. And then she's really upset about this and she wants to talk to people about it. She's like, okay, I'm around the brightest girls in the United States right now. Can we please talk about this? And nobody wants to talk about it. Was it uncouth or they were just not, they were just like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to be sad. And she's like, but I need to process this. And then she has no one... To kind of talk to about it. And she feels kind of like alone in her like horror about these events. And they just like didn't really seem to be concerned about it. So by the end of the internship, she was just really ready to leave. She was disenchanted and she was slipping into a deep depression. The night she left, she threw all of her beautiful fashion clothes out the window as a symbol of her just rejection of what she had just experienced. (sighs) And she ended up borrowing some really old, out-of-date clothes from a friend. Uh, It's his green skirt and a white peasant blouse. It's just the vision of that. Like, you can see it in your head. A green skirt and a white blouse. I feel like you were wearing that, like, two days ago. I definitely was. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She goes home to her mother where she stays for the rest of the summer. And her mother is kind of noticing that her daughter is in a worsening state. And then she notices gashes on her legs.
1: No, 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 no,
0: no. When she asks Sylvia about them, Sylvia says, oh, mother, the world is such a rotten place. I just wanted to see if I had the guts to kill myself. says, I wanted to see if I was brave enough to do it.
1: Cutting is such a, like, an interesting mm-hmm. like, part of depression in such a yeah. very weird way. Yeah. Wow, that's that's striking because also, like, the bell jar, like, now would be, like, all the hub on social media. Everybody oh, yeah. would be talking about why these two women
0: or these women's lives were taken. Yeah. And it's, like, people just weren't ready for her. No, they really weren't. They weren't ready to have these tough conversations about really difficult topics. And um, Aurelia is obviously alarmed, and she takes her to the hospital immediately. She's like, I... No, this like can't happen. So she takes her to a psychologist and this is when Sylvia received her first dose of electric shock therapy. Mm. Now, this is a treatment that is still used today. Um, It's usually as a last resort. I mean, I have a friend that actually really benefited from it um, because it's more fine tuned now. But when Sylvia and many other people at the time were experiencing it, it was new and it was not being done properly. I mean, it was done frequently. And without any anesthesia or muscle relaxants. So you were just experiencing the whole thing.
1: I mean, it's like the blood leaching of the time. Uh, Yeah.
0: And so two electric nodes would be placed on the side of the head and a rubber guard is placed in the mouth. And an electric stimulus would pass through the nodes to produce a brain seizure. And it was horribly painful. It was scary people would come out like sometimes not like remembering things and it like or like it would like kind of dull their personality for a little while like it was just like really difficult and it just worsened Sylvia's feelings towards her mother and again it sucks because like we look at it now and it's like yeah that was terrible but like her mom was listening to The professionals. She was like, yeah, like this is what they suggest. So I'm going to do anything I can to help my kid.
1: Yeah. Her mom's highly educated. And at that point, the highly educated field is like, this is what you do. It's a very like Rosemary Kennedy situation. Yes, it is. Like, how do we fix this thing? Yeah. It's like, well, it actually didn't need fixing. You just needed to like be there. Yeah.
0: So this went on for the rest of the summer. And on August 24th, 1953, Sylvia was home. Her mom was out and she dressed in the same green skirt and white blouse that she had left New York in, and she went to the medicine cabinet. She took the bottle of sleeping pills, wrote her mother a note saying, gone for a long walk, we'll be home tomorrow. And she proceeded to crawl into this small crawl space or like cellar area underneath of the house, and she consumed the entire bottle of pills, which totaled about 40. When Aurelia came home, she knew that something was wrong, So she reported Sylvia missing immediately. Police and neighbors came out looking for Sylvia, walking through the woods and streams and hiking trails surrounding the house. News of her disappearance even made the news. Headlines read, local Smith girl missing at Wellesley. And it would be accompanied by a black and white photo of Sylvia looking like the type of girl everyone wanted to find. For three days, she laid under the porch. Three days, vomiting and drifting in and out of consciousness. So she's alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shit. Until her brother Warren finally heard her moaning under the floorboards. She was immediately located and taken to a hospital where a nurse remarked that she looked more dead than alive. Because she really did look horrible. Her thrashing and writhing under the porch had left her with cuts and bruises and dirt just like all over her face and body. While she was in the hospital recovering, Aurelia informed Olive Higgins Prouty, her mentor and benefactor, about this. But unfortunately for Sylvia, her mother told Olive, she goes, I think it's because a boy that she liked got engaged, which wasn't true. No,
1: that isn't true.
0: And to this day, we're not really sure if this was a lie that she told or if it was just her misunderstanding her daughter and her daughter's pain. We really don't know. Like she's like, I maybe she was like I just can't even imagine what it could be it must be about a boy. So Olive stepped in and she goes, "Let me take care of this." She paid for all of Sylvia's medical bills and then she had her transferred to a private psychiatric hospital where um she paid all the bills, she took care of her. And there was here where, um, she underwent insulin shock therapy, which I've never heard of instead of electric shock therapy, Like putting sugar in your body. Yeah. So it's basically, they inject a large amount of insulin into your system to place you in a brief coma lasting, you know, about like an hour. And they would do this every day. And this therapy is no longer used at all because it was obviously not good for the patient's. Um, Sylvia briefly lost the ability to read and write and her long-term memory was permanently damaged.
1: Oh, and that's her like favorite thing. You
0: know, but Olive cared so much about Sylvia because she knew how Sylvia was feeling. She herself had survived a mental breakdown just 25 years prior. So she just like knew intimately what Sylvia was going through. But Sylvia survived and eventually returned to her studies. <laughs> In January 1955, she submitted her thesis, The Magic Mirror, a study of the double in two of Dostoevsky's novels. And in June, she graduated from Smith with her degree, summa cum laude, even through... All of this and while experiencing like the aftershock of all this, which was a lot of like residual pain and suffering like constant nightmares. Like she would wake up imagining her being wheeled through the hospital tunnels. Hmm. Like she was really traumatized. Um, But after she graduated, she discovered that she received a Fulbright scholarship to study at Newnham college in England This was one of the two women-only colleges of the University of Cambridge in England. So she's going to fucking Cambridge.
1: It's so impressive.
0: It's so impressive. Especially
1: after everything she's been through and, like, everything her brain, like, physically, not, like, emotionally. Everything her brain has physically been through.
0: Yeah. So she goes off to Cambridge and she feels like she's getting a new start. She loved England. She really thrived there. Um, even though a lot of the people were kind of shocked by her bold and loud American demeanor, (laughs) but she was always the life of the party. Like she is going in and being like the loud American girl because she like kind of loves that role. Mm -hmm. She's like, yeah, I'm going to be super fucking fun here. Um, she is writing again. She's getting her work published in the student newspaper and then her whole life changes when she meets a man by the name of Ted Hughes. So in 1956, she attended a party celebrating the first issue of a new literary magazine. She's having a good time. She takes a few shots of whiskey. <laughs> She's wearing her favorite pair of red dancing shoes. She's cutting in and out of dances with people. She's just having such a good time and then she like stops and she spots this Tall, handsome man from across the room. And she just looked, turned to the person next to her, and she was like, Who is that? And someone said, Oh, that's Ted Hughes. Sylvia immediately recognized the name. Ted Hughes was an up and coming British poet whom Sylvia adored. She had even memorized a few of his poems because she thought he was so brilliant. So what did she do? She marched right up to him, looked him in the eye, and recited his own poetry to him in the middle of this party. Oh, he's like hook, line, and sinker. Hey he's girl. like, I, oh, he's so, hey, girl, in. I mean, he is flabbergasted. He is shocked, and he is so flattered that someone had read his poetry, let alone memorized it. Like I can't even imagine a higher compliment for a poet. Especially like someone who like literally like just started getting published in general. Like this is such a big deal. It's
1: like the first time somebody somebody asks you to
0: sign an autograph. Exactly. You're like, oh, oh, You're like, oh
1: my god. Wow. <laughs> wow.
0: So he poured her a glass of brandy and the two talked to each other all night. The attraction was immediate and intense and after a while he leaned in and kissed her and she responded with a biting him on the cheek. <laughs> it was fucking on. <laughs> she loved everything about him, but especially his height. He was six feet tall and she was five, nine. So she was like, I finally have a boyfriend that I can like wear heels around and like not feel weird. You know, <laughs> that's cute. Which I know is like a struggle for like tall girls. It's a like, tall girl problem for sure. It is like, you know, like I'm not like crazy tall, but like fiance and I are about the same height and sometimes I like feel weird about like wearing heels and stuff right he would stand up straight he would be a little bit taller than me but
2: (laughs) he refuses
0: he just won't do it um but she also just loved that he encouraged her to write and draw and think and they really did inspire each other she once said of him he's a singer storyteller lion and world wanderer with a voice like the thunder of god she was in awe of him she's in deep so deep like oh yeah daddy deep absolutely and she lovingly gave him the nickname of ted huge which is fitting because he's a total big but a lot worse.
1: But that sounds like a nickname Samantha would give you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ted oh, Hughes. honey. I like to call
0: him Ted Hughes.
1: <laughs> thank you, Kim. Where'd you call You come can give from? me a Ted
0: talk anytime, honey.
1: <laughs> I didn't know that um, you were here.
0: <laughs> Miss Control, thank Katrell. you. Thank you
1: for
2: joining us. <laughs>
0: um, and this is the thing Sylvia's falling fast, hard, deep, all of it. But she also had an inkling. She like kind of knew it would be a disaster. No. She wrote to her mother. I'm so in love that this can only end in hurt. Yeah. (laughs) She knew Ted was a womanizer, but she told herself the thing that so. Not me. So many of us do. (laughs) She goes, no, I'm special. I'm different. I'm going to be the one to change him. (laughs) Yeah. All right. But. Good try, baby. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Baby. But what really sealed the deal was when he envisioned the same future as her, they both agreed. They wanted to get married. They wanted to have kids and they wanted to write together. That had been her goal all along. She had always wanted to kind of like you know, how she said in her like in the beginning when she started college she's like i'm looking for a husband because i can do both i can have it all and like she at this point is like i'm ready to be married and have children and be the most prolific writer of the 20th century does
1: he mean it
0: yeah i think he does okay I think he at this does. Point- he's
1: like ted mosby
0: right now he's like I'm i think he's ted mosby okay. being it, but he doesn't realize he's a fucking barney
1: <laughs> so i mean no he
0: does realize it
1: uh, he's a Percy Shelley. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fuck boy oh. of the 20th century.
0: So they just, they have this vision. And in just four months, she proposed to him. Cute. Which is, Super and cute. they were married on June 16th, 1956, which apparently is like James Joyce Day or something like that. So very poet-esque. Very fun of All them. the writers are like, oh my God. How cute! I Love that day. <laughs>
1: let's all write a let's all write a line together at your exactly. wedding.
0: Exactly. Um, they were married at Saint George the Martyr Hall, born in London. She wore a pink dress, her favorite color, and carried a single pink rose. They Stop ha- it! I know. Only Get out. and only her mom was in attendance. Like they didn't like tell anyone. This is. Are a, you allowed to have one witness and and a priest? I think that's fair. Maybe the priest, then a is, a priest is a witness. Yeah. yeah. <gasps> They honeymooned in Paris and Spain, just reveling in each other and just encouraging each other to write and looking at the stars. They loved astrology and occasionally asking their Ouija board a question or two. They also loved a good Ouija board. (laughs) Get out of here
1: with this romantic comedy happening. I know.
0: So then the next year in 1957, they moved to the United States. So Sylvia could accept a job teaching at her alma mater, Smith college. And she did finish her fellowship and everything at, at Cambridge. (gasps) um and ted accepted a job uh teaching at the university of massachusetts and for a while it was like everything that they had envisioned i mean he believed in her she believed in him and they were just obsessed with each other but teaching didn't seem to suit her most students didn't like her and she really didn't like them she just like <laughs> wasn't very into the teaching aspect she wanted to be a writer So but she has to grade like 70 papers a week like she's really swamped and she's also taking on the role of her husband's PR rep and like acting as kind of his secretary. She's typing up his manuscripts and sending them off their publication because even though the plan was to do it together in her mind she's like oh well he's already started. He's already like kind of well known so like we'll just get his career off and then mine. So, in her mind, she was like, no, we're in it together. It's just his career is more important at the moment. Always envisioning that, like, she's going to come after him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This sounds like a terrible plan. Yeah. And she just, like, eventually during this time, like, didn't have any time to write, which made her really sad. And then... Ted would give her topics to write about. He goes, well, why don't you write about this? Why don't you write about that? And it just kind of seemed like a little controlling at this point. Like, she's like, I don't know if I want to write about that. Like, yeah. I mean, I can, but do I really want to? Is it my best work? And then she started to get a little suspicious of Ted and his whereabouts. Worried that he was cheating on her with his students. Um, she even was supposed to meet him one day and he like never showed up. And then she saw him like roaming around campus with a young girl. And she's like, what the fuck? And he was, no, we're talking about poetry. It's so innocent. She's just a student who's interested. Like, I'm just trying to mentor her. You mean just like she was like a couple years back? It's like, fuck you. Like, so this is all going on. And then one of Sylvia's students committed suicide. And it just I think this kind of solidified, you know, like we're not coming back. They were both offered the same positions the next year and they turned them down. They're like, we don't really want to come back. Um, So after this, they moved to Boston and Sylvia took a job as a receptionist in, ironically, a psychiatric unit of Massachusetts General Hospital. Real big, like 180 here. Like,
1: I <laughs> you know what I heard um, though a lot of people who go into like working in therapy needed therapy as a child,
0: yeah. Well, and that's what she said. She was like, I actually felt a lot of comfort because I was around people who I felt like had similar experiences to me, mm-hmm. and one of her jobs was transcribing patients' dreams. Um, and she was like, I found that to be very interesting. That sounds
1: terrifying, but that sounds like a good, uh,
0: book starter. Very good book starter. (laughs) She definitely found a lot of inspiration in that. Um, but you know, but she is finding actually that it's like a really nice place for her because she doesn't feel as alone as she normally does. Right. Um, Ted was a freelance writer at this time, and (laughs) soon the couple is kind of trying to get more involved in the literary scene. So they're hanging out with other writers, and, you know, but it's all about Ted. It's all about him. And she's like, well, you know what? I'm also a writer. That's not her thing. No. And so she starts attending some writing workshops put on um, by the poet Rob Lowell and it was here where she met Anne Sexton. Anne is this vivacious young housewife who was also an up-and-coming poet and the two just got along swimmingly. They just connected on everything and so they would go to this writing workshop together and then they would meet up afterwards. They would go to a bar they would talk about poetry. They would drink martinis and they would eat potato chips because they were free at the bar. That's so cute. Which is why I had to include it. Uh, you had to. <laughs> they Mart- just had- Girl time. I feel like martinis and potato chips is so perfect. It's I just, just love the, the right the amount of salt. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and they also confided in each other about their own mental health struggles. Um, they talked about their suicide attempts and they just talked about it openly, which is, like, I'm sure was kind of like a relief to both of them to be like therapeutic therapeutic exactly um and they talked about their fraught relationships with their mothers they both had that going on and like i it was at this time where like Anne and robert lowell were like sylvia like your poems about nature and stuff they're beautiful but you need to get deeper they're like you need to write about your own experiences which she really wasn't doing at the time And this is what introduces her to what she is most famous for about this, like for this, like a confessional poetry is like what it's called. And they're like, you need to start writing about like real stuff, like stuff that hits home for people because it's fucking true. So she kind of shirks off like Ted telling her what to write about. And she starts writing about her depression, about her menstruation, about her relationships, about her dad. Like she starts putting it all into her work. Um, Anne Sexton really inspired Sylvia, but unfortunately the two might have been a little bit too similar and Anne ended up committing suicide in nineteen seventy-four. So then she's like losing her best friend. Yeah. Well, this is after actually um Sylvia. Okay. But I think Anne felt that way. She's like, Oh my god, like I lost this person who I connected with and like the one person I felt like I could talk to. And probably this.
1: who you felt like, Oh, they're strong. If they can make it, I can make it. And exactly. then if you lose that person, right.
0: Yeah. So in 1959, Sylvia and Ted moved back to London. And just a year later, Sylvia would celebrate two babies. Her first collection of published poetry named The Colossus and her lovely daughter, Frida Rebecca, born on April 1st. And so she is just over the moon right now. She has a baby. She published her first book. She's like Again, she's, like, feeling like, this is it. This is what I wanted. But then in February of 1961, she suffered a miscarriage. Ugh. Apparently, after a fight in which Ted physically abused her. And it's around this time she starts her work on The Bell Jar. She completed this novel in six weeks. Shut up. That's unheard out, of an outrageously short amount of time right and it's the story of her time at mademoiselle magazine um and of course her suicide attempt in electric shock therapy um with the main character esther greenwood standing in for sylvia and it's written similarly to Catcher in the rye which i thought was so interesting when someone pointed that out Because I was like, that's so true. Because, like, I read The Bell Jar. Like, I also read Catcher in the Rye, but I connected much more with The Bell Jar. And this was kind of done on purpose. Like, Sylvia had read Catcher in the Rye. And, like, a lot of people point to The Bell Jar as the Catcher in the Rye for girls. Right. Because J.D. Salinger, like, it's such a great book. And
1: it's Mm -hmm. such a banned book because people aren't supposed to feel that way as men. Yeah. And I feel like The Bell Jar was less, like... Or it was more accepted because it's like, oh, a woman had problems. Yeah, exactly. Okay.
0: And as a young girl, you're like, oh my gosh, I have fucking problems. Like, I feel this way. Like, if I'm in, like, a room full of girls sometimes, yeah, I feel super fucking alone. Right. Like, it just, it was a, it, I feel like it really connects you to something bigger. Sure. And again, it's in that kind of, like, rambling, like, uh, stream, what is it, stream of thought. Yeah, stream like, of consciousness. Stream yeah. of consciousness kind of writing. And so it wasn't published quite yet. um, But then she found out she was pregnant again. And her and Ted decided to move to the countryside. Um, They had been living in London. So they moved out to the countryside to a house called Court Green. And once they were settled into life in the country, they actually started to do a little bit better again. Um, They actually split up the household duties equally, which was really uncommon for the time. Sylvia would write in the morning and Ted cooked, cleaned, and cared for the baby. And then they would switch. Sylvia would watch the baby and the the kids in the afternoon while Ted wrote. And in 1962, she gave birth to her second son, Nicholas Ferrer. But Ted was not as interested in this new baby. And his poetry reflected that. He wrote a lot about death and feeling trapped while Sylvia wrote about isolation and motherhood, and
1: why because men feel trapped when they have to
0: raise their own children, mm-hmm. and then women feel alone because <laughs> they're, doing it, they're by doing it by themselves, right? Crazy. <laughs> um, so since they were out living like outside of London, they decided to rent the flat that they owned to a young married couple, Ashia and David Wevel, um, who were also young writers trying to make a living. Um, but this is where things fell apart. So they're out in the country. It's working for a little bit. And then Ted is just complaining more and more because he's like, oh, I can't write. Cause like Sylvia, Sylvia's just like stifling me. Like I wrote like so many poems in like the couple of days that she was gone. Like, I just like, I feel like she's suffocating me. All right. Calm down, Ted. Mm-hmm. it's like maybe you're not writing because you're not fucking good at it. I'm just kidding. He's probably like, he's very good. He's very famous for poetry and stuff, but
1: <laughs> yeah, but also like, don't pretend like it's one person's fault
0: that exactly. you can't write. Maybe you have writer's block. Like, yeah, who cares? Yeah. And so he's just like starting to complain a lot. He is starting to resent her. He's telling her sometimes I just wish you were dead.
1: That's not a okay thing to say to the mother of your children slash wife slash anyone.
0: And then he tells her, you know what? If your suicide attempt had been more successful, my life would be a lot easier. I can't even imagine saying that to someone that's so fucking terrible. And at some point during this time period, she did attempt suicide one more time when she drove her car off the road into a river.
1: Yo, girl.
0: It's just... You need is- to just
1: like leave that boy and like not turn your poem in this. We we've had this conversation, Sylvia, like just don't, you don't have to do what fucking people tell you to do.
0: And then they finally met their new tenants for dinner one night. And it it was clear that Ted was enamored with (sighs) Asha. The two started a passionate affair, which Sylvia suspected. Uh, but then it was confirmed when she got a call at the house one day, it was Asha asking for Ted But then she immediately realized it was Sylvia and lowered her voice pretending to be a man. Again, like a fucking sitcom. And so she is furious. She rips the cord out of the wall. Then she goes looking and she finds poems that Ted has written about Asha. Describing in detail their affair and their sex life. And... She writes to her doctor back in Boston about all this because she still has a doctor that she writes to about her struggles. Of course. And she writes to this doctor and she is like, I just I'm so distressed. I can't believe this is happening. But God damn, what a fantastic poem this is. The writing is so good. I'm so <laughs> proud of him for being such a good poet.
1: Shut up. I know. Shut up. It's I all, hate her for it's that.
0: Also upsetting. On October 12th, 1962, she confronts Ted. They get in this huge fight and he's just like, I don't want this anymore. And so she's like, okay, well, like let's split up. And like she drives him to the train station and he's gone and it was over. And then something interesting happens. She writes in her journal, I expected to be morbid when I returned to the empty house. But I wasn't. I was ecstatic. With Ted out of the way, she actually started writing again. And over the next year, she would produce what many consider her best work. She moves back to London with her kids. She found this perfect apartment. It was a flat where none other than W.B. Yates had lived. Stop. I know. Just like a perfect place for her to like really... Come to London and be like, I am a serious writer. It's me. I'm not just the wife of Ted. I am Sylvia. The Bell Jar is finally published. She even gets invited to be on this panel called The Critics in 1963, which was like a huge honor because to be asked to participate in this is basically like we think you're qualified to be a tastemaker of London. Like this, these are the people that are going around to all the things and being like, this is good. This is shit. Like (laughs) we like it. We hate it. Exactly. Like she is an actual person who has asked their opinion on what's going on in the art scene in London. Like this is very exciting. Um, and it just, it kind of, means so much to her because she's being now seen as totally separate from Ted and respected on a separate plane from him. She's putting together some of her best work yet, a collection of poetry she would later call Ariel, um, and she's writing a follow-up to The Bell Jar, which is another semi-autobiographical piece called Double Exposure, which is basically what happens after The Bell Jar, which is what happened to Sylvia, like what happens when you get married and it kind of falls apart. Right. So she's doing all this. She's working. She's being a single mom. And then the winter came and it is one of the worst winters in London history. Pipes froze. They burst. Power went out all over London and candles were sold out of all the stores. So you couldn't even get candles. Snow was piled up so high. You almost couldn't leave your house. And, Sylvia had clinical depression, but she also definitely had seasonal Seasonal depression. Depression. She even wrote to her mother, I have to stop letting the seasons get to me or this English winter will be the death of me. And with the cold coming, she's getting tired. The weight of being a single mother also came crashing down on her. Her kids are sick. The apartment is cold and she writes to her mother and she's like, I feel like it's a steamroller of responsibility. And she has no help. And she's also becoming really resentful of Ted. He, she's like, he's off in Spain with the girl that he left me for.
1: And like not, there's no like child support or anything. No.
0: And then the bell jar, like the reviews start coming in and like they're not super positive And like they don't really want to publish it in the United States. And she's feeling really defeated about that. And she really starts to spiral. Friends are concerned about her and her doctor is very worried. He tried to persuade her to check herself into a hospital, but she refused saying she's like, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And he goes, okay, well, I'm going to check in on you every day and I'm going to prescribe you an antidepressant. But he told her, he goes, it takes a while for it to kick in. So if you don't feel 100% better, it takes like three weeks. So, like just know that like your life isn't going to change overnight just because you take this pill because it takes a while so be patient
1: let it soak in
0: and uh, but he's still so worried he talks to Aurelia and uh, after speaking her mom's like you know what I'm gonna hire a nurse to like I know you're calling her but like I need someone to physically check in on her so and just make sure that her and the kids are okay mm. So the first visit from this hired nurse was scheduled for February 11th, 1963 at 9 a.m. That very day, early in the morning, Sylvia left out food for the children and placed a note out with her doctor's phone number. And then she went to the kitchen, carefully sealed the doors with tape and towels and cloth. And at 4.30 a.m., she turned on the oven and placed her head inside. So, at this point, we didn't have the pilot lights. So, when you turn on the oven, you had to manually light it. There was no, like, it didn't turn on automatically with the fire. You had to light it yourself. So, it's just gas coming in. And hours later, at 9 a.m., the nurse arrived. And, of course, there's no answer. A man finally helped her get into the apartment. And they went into the kitchen and found Sylvia dead from carbon monoxide poisoning with her head in the oven. She was 30 years old. She was buried in a London graveyard with the inscription, Even amidst fierce flames, the golden lotus can be planted. Her grave is almost always covered in flowers from admirers, and the last name Hughes is often crossed out, so it usually simply reads Sylvia Plath. Ted, said Hughes, uh, inherited her estate, which meant he took over her final collection of poetry, which had yet to be published. But she left it all ready to go with the contents, the layout, and even the name of the collection. It would be called Ariel, and she indeed meant for it to be published. It was kind of her last work, and that was her last wish to publish this collection. And it's often considered her best work. And it contains famous poems such as Daddy and Lady Lazarus. It even won a Pulitzer Prize in the 80s. But the book wasn't quite right. Ted decided to put some extra poems in there that she hadn't wanted to include. And then he took two of her journals and lost them. So now we'll never know what was in those.
1: Because it was talking
0: trash about him. Probably. But worst of all, he changed the order of her book, and he decided that the end of the book should be a poem called Edge, which basically reads as a suicide note. But that's not what Sylvia wanted. Sylvia had been clear that the last poem in the book should be Wintering. It's a poem about her struggles, but more importantly, how struggling or winter is a phase. It's a part of a larger cycle. And she describes herself in the poem as, as as a bulb. I'm hibernating. But the reason she wanted it to end the book is because the last line is, the bees are flying, they taste the spring. She wanted spring to be the last word of the book, just a final symbol of hope that things will get better. And that's how we'll end today as she wanted it with visions of hope and spring.
1: That's really sweet. And like her dad studied bees. I know. So like having that in the last line is really important.
0: It's it just, if you could sum up Sylvia, like that's it. Like just this last poem about how like, I am sad. I'm in hibernation, but I will like, you everything know, everything
1: will be better.
0: Sometimes it isn't, you know. Yeah, and but that's what she wanted. But that's what she wanted. She wanted it to be better, and it makes me so mad that Ted took that away from her. That then it ends with this really bleak poem, and not the one she wanted. She was like, "No, I want it to end on hope and spring and light," which is why I wanted the cocktail to be fun and light and not sad and dark, because that's not what she wanted to leave the world with. No, and you know, like if you want to like the world being sad and dark would mean like your depression
1: controls you and it does. not Yeah. No, it doesn't. It it can highly affect you, but you are more than your depression. Yeah, for sure. (sighs) Oh, are you ready
0: to talk about? Yes, I am (laughs) in a little segment. We like to call just the two of us. I mean there's so many similarities. There really are. Well, because I mean comedy and drama and like sadness, they are such a they're such a fine line.
1: Well, and I think alcoholism and depression are oh, also yeah. treated in such the same way
0: absolutely
1: where like people for so very long thought it was just a problem that you had and you weren't strong enough to deal with it until we had the science to understand that people are sick Mm -hmm. and people need help and it's okay to ask for that help and you know both carol and sylvia had to deal with that in their families and in their lives the whole way through
0: oh yeah absolutely and then like generations after them too yeah that was something i didn't get into it because i wanted to kind of end with the spring thing but later on sylvia's son nick um also committed suicide right and it just kind of feel and it kind of reminded me of like carol's like daughter suffering you know and yeah. it just kind of felt like oh my gosh like how do i get out of here how do we get out of here mm-hmm. you know which it's it's really difficult but
1: i am I'm also really obsessed with boarding houses <laughs> yeah i like I know it sounds dumb, but like i I like that there's a fact that like you can go and live at this all female like apartment building or this all male apartment building like you don't have to be in like the random projects or something like I know it was not desirable, but it seems like it was a pretty good system because we've gone through woman after woman after woman who was like i yeah, I had to. Make my ends meet by living in a boarding house.
0: Yeah. And I think it was a really good option for women to be like, I'm going to go here. But I know it's kind of like the assurance that there are places designed to keep me safe you know what i'm saying which we like don't really have anymore and if you want to feel safe in a place that you're staying at you have to pay a lot of money for that
1: right and like for women usually there was like a matriarch of the boarding house and you weren't allowed to have men in your room Mm -hmm. so it's like there were like rules and i know today we would be like i have freedom but like it just seems so
0: safe it's like a college (laughs) dormitory yeah and like there is literally one person trying to like have your fucking back and have you not get murdered right (laughs) right 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 that feels good sometimes also it's so crazy to me that they were in boarding houses in manhattan at At like the same time time, because they were born so close and i i just i think that
1: it is just it is the gilded age of like the world really where when we look back these are the people who were, like, the precipice of the 20th century. Oh, absolutely. So I, I think it makes sense that these two women are in the one of the most important cities in the world at the time. Yeah. And making hugely different impacts. Because I kept thinking about Sylvia's family's push towards education. And yeah. Carol's grandmother's push towards just, like, a little bit of fun. Oh, like,
2: let's just
0: have fun. That's the only thing we have. Let's have it. Well, and like the push towards like the industry, like I felt like Carol's parents were like really trying to be a part of the like show business industry. Yeah. And you also had, you know, Sylvia's parents like in the academic intellectual industry, totally
1: academia, like trying to
0: make it. And it's funny that in a weird way, they were escaping the pressures of their family situation by almost indulging in the products of those two things. Like I feel like Sylvia really escaped into books when she was a kid and Carol escaped into movies. Like I'm just obsessed with the fact that Carol found so much comfort in films, Mm. you know, because I think it is like this way to, I don't know. Yeah. Just escape and like take a break. I know some, that's how I feel when I watch movies and oh, yeah. TV shows, I'm oh, taking yeah. a fucking break. Like, but
1: it's also <laughs> super cool that like, so they're both different art outlets mm-hmm. and I love that, but I also, it pains me a little bit for Sylvia because, okay, so they both had mothers mm-hmm. that they were like not a hundred percent happy with. Yes. And Carol decided to take that and unleash her unhappiness in a world of comedy and laughter, mm. which is, definitely an avenue and it Mm -hmm. is a dark avenue to take all your pain and make people laugh about it that's not super easy no but i feel like sylvia held on to her anger so Mm -hmm. that she could use it in poetry it's very an adele song where you're like what has happened to you yes um so i just i just think lucy was not lucy that's lucille ball we'll get to that (laughs) that's my next point but carol was willing to let it go and sylvia was not willing to let her mom off the hook
0: No, no, she wasn't, you know, and it's funny because I almost feel like Carol had much more of a right to be angry, angry at her mom. Yeah. Like I, and again, maybe if I read a different biography, listened to someone different, I would feel totally different about Sylvia's mom.
1: Right. And it's also no one's right to tell you how to feel. definitely not.
0: Because like, obviously, like her mom did make a lot of mistakes. Like, yeah. You know, but I, it's hard because like, I feel like I can see her mom, like, trying to help her daughter Mm. and she has the resources of 1950 right it's like she thought she was doing the best that she could and like I don't know I just mother issues were very interesting and also kind of like always trying to please your dad yeah you know and like not and having your dad not be able to see your success I mean fuck Sylvia didn't even see her own success yeah
1: (laughs) I mean also like having this random
0: people swoop from the outside to help you they both had weird benefactors yeah which goes to show you how talented they both were people can see you because people can see you and like people saw them and were like you are something special right and uh, I felt like it's interesting because I feel like you expect like when you talk about like Carol Bonette, it's like you would think that she would have the confidence that Sylvia had to be like, like Sylvia told her, like, she's like, I want them to like, I want to be like the girl who thought she was God. Like People Sylvia, gonna, like at my feet. Yeah. Sylvia felt. had, I think
2: more ironically, confidence. a lot
0: more confidence than Carol. I agree. And it's interesting how that kind of manifests. And like when you start off having all this confidence and then it kind of can easily topple over. Mm. Whereas I think Carol went in being like, well, you know, I'm not super attractive. I'm just going to do the fucking best that I can. And then, it, like, I think it's setting your expectations and also setting your workload, too. Because I think Carol was obviously, like, hustling all the time. I also want to mention, too, that they both have things that they're frequently... uh, They have, like, ignored features and things that they're kind of disregarded for. Like, I felt like... Carol is this incredible singer, but, like, nobody likes to talk about that. Nobody likes to acknowledge it, you know? And I felt the same way about Sylvia being happy because all the pictures
1: I've seen of her are, like, sulking.
0: Yeah, but, like, she really had a wonderful, bright, joyous personality, and she was, like, the life of the party. But that doesn't fit the narrative we like to put her in as the sad girl. And if we admit that Carol Burnett is as good of a singer as Julie Andrews, it doesn't fit our narrative of what a funny girl is, what a comedian right. is. She
1: can't, be, she can't be also talented. Yeah. You can't be both. Why be funny if you're a great
0: singer? You should have just been a singer. She should have just been a fucking singer. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, those who, you know, can sing and those who can't tell jokes. Right. And it's like, well, that's not true. You can also be both, which I felt like Sylvia was always trying to do. She's like, I just want to have it all. You know? Um, But sometimes you, I think women are forced into sacrificing a part of themselves and I felt like they both had these features that were like just ignored for the comfort of everyone else around them because it complicates the narrative when we put too many labels on people. Mm. I don't know. So it's just they live really interesting, interesting lives.
1: Like – at the same time.
0: At the same like, time. In like such
1: a juxtaposition. And
0: they had such different endings, obviously. Um, because Carol
1: is still, you know, thriving, but she's yeah. also had to live with watching every one of her friends and co stars die. So like yeah. she's in this place now where like Sylvia Plath didn't have to be because she went first, like we said with like her friend. Yeah. When yeah. you
0: when you go early, you don't have to watch your life kind of disappear around you. Yeah. But then other people are left to deal with the situation, right? You know, like I think about her, her kids a lot. And like, you know, as I think that Ted Hughes is not the best person, but like also like it really affected his career, like probably should have because he seems like an asshole. But like, you know, every time he would go to book signings or like poetry readings, people would be like, you're a fucking murderer. Like people like are like, you did this. And like. Obviously, Sylvia had had these problems before Ted, but he exasperated them for sure. Right. But, like, I don't know. It's just, it's all very interesting and complicated, and it does make me sad. Like, I wish so much that Sylvia had felt more supported. Right. Mm. I don't know. And it's hard, too, because, like, then, like, the doctor really came under fire, and people, like, accused him of medical malpractice.
1: he's He's like like, i try i was like i really
0: fucking tried i'm sending
1: her medicine she should have gotten a doctor like in england who was like
0: close by that's thing. that that doctor was in england he was calling her every day well yeah then that's not his fault no and like and they hired a nurse and like it just it was that day i don't know you do what you can it sucks and like i don't know are you ready to toast these women i'm ready to toast ali who would you like to toast this evening
1: okay I want to toast women who make us laugh, even when it's raunchy or brash or too loud, because (laughs) there is no such thing as a woman being too loud. I love that. You can just be funny. (sighs) Perfect. So
0: cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Who do you want to toast? I am going to toast women who are more than their depression. I think a lot of people assume that Sylvia was miserable all the time, but she wasn't. Uh, she definitely suffered a lot, but she, there are so many times when she was just effervescent and fun, and I also don't think that we have to say that, like, she was a different person at that time or, like, this time, because whatever mood she was in, she was the same person suffering from the same illness, and She mattered. No matter what her circumstance, no matter what mood she was in, no matter what state of mind she was in, no matter what person she was, she fucking mattered, all of her. Yeah. So cheers cheers To, to Sylvia. Mm-hmm. To the girl that makes us cry. No. Oh. <laughs> all right. Now the time of the show where we get out of this sad mood and talk about what we're enjoying in pop culture. Hey. Allie, what do you have?
1: I'm going to be really honest.
0: Okay. Is it sad? No, No,
1: it's not sad. It's just neutral. I am not enjoying anything in pop culture this week. Really? Because I am finally at a point in my job, and this is positive, where I'm finally treading water.
0: Great. above drowning yeah not quite in the boat
1: I felt like I was drowning (laughs) I felt like I was in the weeds I was going to bed and waking up anxious every day because it's a new job and it's scary and it's hard and I am just for the first time this is my first week of school at this new job where I have not woken up with gut-wrenching anxiety every single day so I am treading water and I have Not had time to care about a book, a movie, a show. I've been going to work and doing the podcast. There you go. And loving my family. So I am just, guys, I'm swimming.
0: Congratulations.
1: Sometimes you can't find something new. You just got to freaking go on autopilot. And I'm on autopilot finally, which I've been yearning for. I love it.
0: Oh, congratulations. Thank you. You're in the middle of the pool now, baby. I'm
1: Listen, (laughs) I'm here. I'm
0: here. Out of the wave pool. Mm -hmm. Um. That's wonderful.
1: What are you loving this week cuz I need to hear it.
0: <laughs> so, I'm going to promote an oldie but a goodie. I was feeling I was thinking a lot obviously about like ways that I make myself feel better when I am feeling really depressed. And uh, that one of those things is the Beach Boys. I fucking love the Beach Boys. <laughs> yes, it's something that okay. evokes. It evokes so much happiness because it was like the thing that my mom listened to when she would clean the house, and it just when I listen to the Beach Boys, it reminds me of like warm like spring days when my mom is like folding laundry and vacuuming and. I just, I love the Beach Boys. I think they're so fun and happy. They also have a lot of tragedy in their story, but we'll ignore that right now. And they're involved in Charles Manson somehow. But their music is really fun. And my dad and I are doing our father-daughter dance to a Beach Boys song, which I can't wait for. And so cute. They're just happy. And I just, yeah. I love their music. So I'm going to promote the Beach Boys.
1: <laughs> I agree. Maybe I need to listen to more Beach Boys. <laughs> you should. They're just
0: silly and fun. And I love them. Maybe I'll
1: be more than just treading water. <laughs> they also, you might
0: enjoy it. They have a song called Caroline No. No. <laughs>
1: The only thing I need. (laughs) Wow. It's like (laughs) Carolina. Yeah. Perfect. Exactly. Okay. Find us everywhere. Be with us everywhere. We love it.
0: All our socials. Um. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Um. And yeah, join us on Patreon if you want to hear all about that story we talked about earlier and uh, (laughs) some extra bonus things. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see you next week. We love you. And never forget that well behaved women know how to waltz. <laughs> they do. And they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>